Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. Our guest this week is Sue William Silverman. Sue William Silverman is a writer, teacher, survivor of child abuse, and tireless advocate for the inclusion of women's voices. Her memoirs have won numerous awards, and Lovesick, One Woman's Journey Through Sexual Addiction, was made into a lifetime movie. She teaches and writes about the craft of writing, including in her book Fearless Confessions, A Writer's Guide to Memoir. Her honesty and generous kindness create a safe space for writers of all backgrounds to take the brave leap into authentic truth-telling. Sue, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. This is really wonderful. I want to start by asking you, what is writing for you? For me, well, initially, it really helped save my life because I uh, grew up in an in, in incestuous family with no sense of self at all and, and really not knowing I had a voice or I had no idea who I was. I was really lost. So initially, it became a way for me really to discover myself through language. And I think it just continues to be that way. I mean, I'm now working on a fourth memoir. And every book I write, I learn more and more about who I am. So it's sort of a constant uh, search for identity. And I just think that, you know, women's stories are important. I feel our voices are important. And, of course, I you know, encourage other women to, to tell their stories as well. But initially, it really was something that kind of kept me alive, sort of emotionally and spiritually. Mm. And you've written about that experience of your childhood in your first book, Because I Remember Terror, Father, I Remember You. That's right. And I once heard you read from that book, and you spoke about how you wrote that book to, in part, work through some of that experience, and it also, as you said, that journey of self-discovery and finding your identity. Uh, but when the book really came to be and was able to become something more than the words on the page that you kept in your office was actually after your father died. That's right. How does that affect, how is it that you, did you choose to wait until your father was no longer living to actually publish this book? Or was that something that happened that sort of gave you a little bit of an extra push to be able to say, yes, I can publish this? That's a really good question. I mean, because I, in fact, started out as a fiction writer. And I spent about 10 years writing fiction. But all of the novels, and I, I wrote something like four or five novels. They're all very bad novels. None of them are published, for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> and um, so I was trying to tell my story through fiction, which means sort of I was trying to tell my story, but not, if you know what I mean, because I was really trying to kind of hide uh, behind fiction. And I was in therapy at the time, and my therapist kept 
encouraging me to write about myself. And I keep kept telling him, well, I really have nothing to say about myself. And that went on probably for a couple of years or so. And then my father died. And at that point, he said, my therapist said to me, well, maybe now you will feel safe enough to write about yourself. And so sort of to, to humor him, or so I was kind of told myself, I said, okay, thinking that I really would maybe write like a little essay or one page or maybe even just a paragraph about myself. But what happened was that when I sat down to then finally write about myself, that whole book, um, that whole first memoir just kind of fell out of me in about three months. Mm. And which was a total shock to me, not so much a shock to my therapist, but it was a shock to me. Um, so it was really at my therapist's urging. And, um, you know, and, and as I say, that did happen after. So I started writing about two weeks after my father died. And, um, but don't know if I would have done that even so, you know, without my uh, therapist encouraging me to do so. So then I wrote it in about three months. And then after it was written, you know, being a writer, we do try to get our work published. Mm -hmm. So that's when I entered it into that AWP, which is this huge um, association for writers and writing programs. And I, and they had a, a writing contest. So I submitted it to that really just can, Thoroughly uh, convinced that it was, didn't have a chance of winning, but then it did win, which was just a huge shock. And part of the the prize of winning was publication. So that was sort of the journey of that book. Mm. I think that when when I think about memoirs that talk about really challenging situations or uh, dangerous situations, things that deal with child abuse and incest and uh, addiction, which is one of the topics of your second book, uh, Love Sick, One Woman's Journey Through Sexual Addiction. Right. Uh, I think there's a way they can be written that is – I think challenging to the reader to not get lost in the journey. And at the same time, as writers, when we write about these really difficult and challenging subjects, we don't write them to make the reader feel bad or to have them pity us. We write them because they're the story that needs to be told. And I'm wondering... Your first two memoirs were really, they are very powerful and deeply personal books. And I'm curious the responses that you've gotten to them that maybe surprised you in some ways. I think that, well, I guess I'm shocked that sort of anybody reads my books. I mean, just because... Well, I guess for one thing, I have very low self-confidence. Um, I'm working on that still, you know, maybe 40 more years, and I may finally get that one nailed down. <laughs> but just, um, but, you know, the title of the first one is because is because I remember Terror Father, I Remember You, that's a scary title. And um, 
I think it does take sort of an act of courage just to kind of pick it up off of the bookshelf. And for which I'm very grateful that people do. And um, and then with lovesick, just you know, being about sex addiction, I think that's a tough topic for uh, people to read, particularly for about women sex addicts. It's more open, really, where men are concerned. But I think the response is just that I received, I think maybe particularly with lovesick, I received so many emails from women who say, oh, that's what I'm struggling with, but I didn't know. And I knew something was wrong because I had these affairs with men and and I, you know, I lost my husband or I lose my children and I keep having affairs and, and I don't understand what's wrong with me and why do I do these things. And so by giving it a name of sex addiction, then, um, you know, I mean, I read emails I get from women just basically thank me for sort of saving their lives. And I know, of course, I did not save their lives, but, but yet there's that feeling of, of recognition that, oh, this isn't just me. Somebody else is struggling with this. So it's a kind of empowering thing, both for the reader and for me as the author, that just kind of having this, uh, being connected to all of these women around the world, you know, mm -hmm. and just sort of being part of this, this group of women who, you know, we're all struggling even if you don't have a sex addiction, I mean, we all struggle with things like alienation and loss and, and, and just, I think most women or a lot of women do have some confusion about sex and who are we as sexual beings because we're so, our bodies are so distorted in, in the media, you know, how you're supposed to look one way and you're not supposed to look another way. I mean, we all sort of struggle with these same things, whether regardless of sort of what the label is, you know, just women have so many similar issues. So I think just the writing being able to get me, um, affords me the opportunity just to be, uh, sort of join and these other women can find me through my writing and then I get to find them as well. And so just being part of this big group of women is just very, it's heartening, it's beautiful, and it's empowering. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the importance of encouraging women to tell their own stories and yes. and finding the ways and the places that we can connect to one another yes. that support that storytelling and that that truth telling yes. without feeling like we are competing as authors. I think there's this idea not so much in the memoir and the creative nonfiction genre mm -hmm. that I've seen, but this idea that when someone gets a book deal or has an essay published, that we can be excited for them and we can support them and encourage them and push them to continue writing. Absolutely. Whereas in other genres or in other situations, it might be, oh, well, so-and-so got a book deal. And I didn't get a book deal. So obviously that says something about me as a writer and all these other things. But I think for women especially, to to move beyond that competitive ilk that isn't really who we are 
and to to cultivate the community. And that for me is part of this podcast series to really cultivate community and to share the the brilliance of the women writers community. I totally agree with you. I mean, we absolutely have to support each other. I mean, because we're ultimately maybe not going to get as much support from men. I mean, I think there's there are a lot of um, men in, in the media out there who really belittle women's memoirs and mm-hmm. you know, they call it it's confessional and it's not really art. And there's really this kind of an impulse to put us down probably because they don't want to hear our truths because some of our truths maybe don't put men in such a good light. <laughs> but um, women, you know, we just absolutely have to support and encourage each other. I just fully believe in that. I teach um, writing at the Slow Residency MFA writing program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And, um, you know, when I have, you know, obviously I have many students too, and of course I encourage you know, everybody, but, um, but just, you know, in that kind of a setting, it's just so important to um, help, you know, beginning writers to kind of feel uh, safe and to, and to convince them, you know, yes, your story is important and yes, it's okay to tell your story. And just because people in the past have told you to be quiet and that your story isn't important or, you know, sometimes you know, young girls are told, oh, that's a secret, don't tell anybody about things that maybe have gone on in the family. But just to sort of break through those walls and break through those silences and just encourage each other is just, it's so crucial. Mm, absolutely. And I think for me, your book, Fearless Confessions, is sort of like a mini writing workshop. Oh, thank you. My ex- my experience of Fearless Confessions, which usually lives on my desk, is that it is <laughs> a book that isn't just, it's not your typical writing book. It's more, and I there's a lot in that book about finding your voice and breaking through those fears of what you've been told to keep locked away and keep silent. Yes. I mean, I think I'm glad that you feel that way about the book because um, when I was first approached and asked if I would write kind of a craft book on sort of writing memoir, I did not want to write sort of a typical craft book like um, as if I was the authority and I had all the answers and I knew how to do all of this. Rather, I wanted to... um, it became more of a, a book about my own, sort of a memoir in some ways about my own writing life and how I failed at times and, and sort of what I did wrong so that I can help the reader know how to do it right. And so I talk about my mistakes and how I kind of figured out writing. And, and I try to make it just, uh, you know, finding the right voices, which is what I believe it's, uh, we all as writers, um, is that we're all sort of struggle together. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody really has this thing locked up and knows and does have all the answers. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, um, what I wanted to do in the book is is make it sound, is have it sound as if, you know, look, these were my struggles as a writer. This is what I sort of figured out along the way. And, you know, this is kind of worked through some of these things together. So it's, it's really, yes, of course, there are, 
there is the how-to element in there as well, you know, how to, you know, find your metaphors and how to find your voice and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to to, um, be just a much friendlier book than a lot of sort of the how-to where somebody sounds like an authority. I'm curious, what inspired you to take the step and not just exist as a writer in your writing space, but also to teach writing? I really do love being with other writers. Um, It's just, and there's something that just makes me feel wonderful when uh, I'm working with a student and the student sort of just gets it or understands something or grows or finds their voice or or overcome some fear. It's just that interaction that I find very meaningful. I mean, I just, I don't like the thought of just me being sort of holed up in my own room all by myself. Yes, writing, to actually do the writing part, you do have to be alone, and you do spend a lot of time alone. But then I think it's important to kind of have a kind of balance where you kind of break out of that. And um, and the way that I have found to do that, to kind of break out of that, that very quiet room where we do sort of have to kind of hibernate for a while in order to write, then just to kind of get open the door and walk out and, and be with um, writers who maybe are on a different uh, point in their journey of writing. Maybe they are just beginning. Maybe they've been writing for a while. Maybe they're still struggling. But where, sort of wherever they are in their journey, I just really love, you know, kind of being with other writers and, and just kind of sharing the process and talk about, you know, the things that we struggle with. and um, And then just also to be with the writers when they have success and so we can sort of celebrate the successes together and we can commiserate with each other when things aren't going so well. It's just, I love being, you know, sort of part of this community of writers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You teach both, as you mentioned, at Vermont College of Fine Arts and also at conferences and at other teaching workshops. And I'm wondering if you can share with us maybe the best advice you've ever received. Probably, in terms of craft, the best advice I ever received is a writing instructor told me that voice is everything. And I think that is so true because everything that we write, I mean, I should back up for a second. Previous to that, or, or maybe about the same time, but I mean, frequently in in writing classes, we're told to find your voice. You have to find your voice. And that totally confused me because it's like, well, how do you find your voice? Like, where is it hiding under the bed? I mean, I don't, I didn't understand what, what that really meant. And then I also subsequently came to learn that we don't just have one voice. Mm. So when I heard the voices, everything that sounded different to me. And that kind of opened up that whole area of voice. And what that did come to mean to me is that everything we write has its own voice. So it's, we aren't just looking for a voice. Each book that I've written sounds different. I mean, yes, there's an ultimate way that it kind of sounds like me, you know, Sue. Mm-hmm. But, um, for example, the first uh, memoir 
because I remember terror, Father, I remember you, is written sort of in the voice of a young wounded girl who is very confused and alienated and lost. And, and um, that's the way that book should sound because that's, I, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm young in the book and, and I that's how I was feeling. And then with Lusin, one woman's journey through sexual addiction, it, there certainly is a connection be, in real life between the two things. I mean, the reason why I became a sex addict was because my father sexually molested me. So on the face of it, it could seem like the, that whole um, experience should be one book. But the reason why there are two books is because of voice. And the voice of lovesick, for the most part, is kind of tougher voice, edgier, more raw. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm more a, an adult in that book, and, and I'm acting out the sex addiction. I'm having affairs. I'm married. I'm cheating on my husband. And so that addict voice is, you know, it's a much tougher voice. And that voice, there's also a voice in there, you know, being lost as well and trying to figure my way out through from the sex addiction. But it's clearly a very different sounding voice than the first book. So, and, and as it should be. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned Fearless Confessions, a writer's guide to memoir, and the voice of it. Even a kind of crack book needs its own voice as well. And in that, it is a voice of um, kind of that of, of a writer, uh, how I sort of figure things out, how how I learn to write and how maybe my experience writing can help you. And then with my new book, which is the Pat Boone Fan Club, My Life as a White Anglo-Saxon Jew, I mean, you can tell just from the title of it that that's going to be a much more ironic book. Mm -hmm. And it's not, there are some kind of dark moments in that book, but for the most part, it is much more ironic. And it's kind of a, uh, essay collection, but, uh, all of the essays sort of speak to each other and it's kind of, um, uh, all around the same, this one being about, uh, sort of my, ambiguity, the ambiguous uh, relationship I've had with Judaism growing up. But, um, so there are some darkish moments in it, but there's some of the sections, hopefully, um, are funny as well. And so, you know, each thing I write, just I've had to find the voice of the piece. Mm. And so this whole idea of voice, I think, while it started out to me to be just kind of confusing, ultimately I, I did sort of figure that out. And that's what I think um, is the most important advice is that voice really is everything. Because once you find the voice of any given piece of writing, then the rest will follow. You'll figure out the structure. You'll figure out your metaphors. You'll figure out the art. But you need to have that voice that, really does convey that specific experience. Mm, Absolutely. And you mentioned the Pat Boone fan club. I'm wondering if you could read to us a little bit from that book now. I would love to. Thank you for asking. Um, Yeah, so this is my most recent book, the Pat Boone fan club, my life as a white Anglo-Saxon Jew. And the title essay, the beginning of the book is called the Pat Boone fan club. And I'm going to read about four or five minutes from that. Perfect. Pat Boone dazzles onto the stage 
of the Calvary Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan. He wears white bucks, white pants, a white jacket with red and blue sequined stars emblazoned across the shoulders. I sit in the balcony, seats empty in the side sections. I'm here by chance, by luck, kidnapped. A few weeks ago, I happened to see a photograph in a local newspaper announcing the concert, part of Tulip Time Festival, only 20 minutes from my house. I stared at his photo in a luring black and white, just as back in junior high school, I gazed at other photos of him. I ordered a ticket immediately. This less than sold out crowd enthusiastically clapped after the opening number, his big hit, Love Letters in the Stand. But there are no whistles or shrieks from this mostly elderly, sedate female audience. No dancing in the aisles, no mosh pit, no rushing the stage. If a fan swoons from her upholstered cue, it will more likely be from stroke than idolatry. The cool, unscented air in the auditorium feels polite as a Sunday worship service rather than a Saturday night rock and roll swaggering Mick Jagger kind of concert. Yet I am certainly worshipful. Of him, I am transfixed, breathless, as if his photograph, that paper image, is conjured to life. I watch only him through binoculars, me in my own white jacket, as if I knew he would match. Pat Boone began as a 50s and 60s pop singer, though he has now aged into a Christian music icon, favored by, I am sure, Republicans. That I am a first-generation Russian-American atheist liberal Democrat gives me no pause, not even as he performed in this concrete megachurch loaded with massive crosses. In fact, as I grew up, these very symbols gave me comfort. I'm not surprised he still affects me. During the days leading up to tonight's concert, I plotted to meet him backstage. But in case I am too overwhelmed to speak, I've written a letter explaining the reason for my devotion. To further prove my loyalty, I have retrieved from an old scrapbook my Sue is a member of the Pat Boone Fan Club card printed on white stock. Surely the letter and card are all the credentials I will need to be raised past security to grant me access to Pat Boone. Tonight, I'm determined to finally tell him what I failed to say the last time we met years ago when I got his autograph after attending one of his live television shows. Time collapses, but even now, it is not too late for him to save me from my Jewish family, save me from a childhood long ended. Back then, as a teenager in New Jersey, the bus rumbled across the George Washington Bridge over the Hudson River. I clutched a ticket to his television show in one hand, a copy of his book, Twits 12 and 20, in the other. Silently, I sang the jingle, To the USA and your Chevrolet, with which he closed his weekly program, a show I watched religiously on our black and white Venus. Now, with the darkness of New Jersey behind me, the gleaming lights of Manhattan before me, I felt as if I myself were a photograph slowly developing into a new life. In just an hour, I would see him in person. 
I wanted to be with him, be his wife, lover, daughter, house guest, girlfriend, best friend, pet, interchangeable. Any one of these relationships would do. Sitting in the studio during the show, I waited for it to end. Mainly, I waited for the time when we would meet. Yes, I suppose I loved his voice, his music. At least if asked, I would claim to love his songs. What else could I say? Since there was no language at that moment to specify what I most needed from Pat Boone, how could I explain to him, to anybody, that if I held that magnifying glass over my skin, I would see my father's fingerprints. I would see skin stained with shame. I would see a girl who seemed marked by her very Jewishness. Since my Jewish father misloved me, what I needed in order to be saved was an audience with Pat Boone. So I'll just leave it there. I sort of skipped around a little bit, but that's more or less uh, from the opening of the, of the book. Hmm. That's powerful stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. And based, oh, I was just going to say that um, basically the book does revolve around uh, three times that I met Pat Boone. So with where I left that, uh, left you in that essay, in fact, I did barge backstage and I did meet Pat Boone. And, uh, and then uh, the, I, he was interested in my story and I, I uh, sent him my two memoirs, and then he, he was going to be back in Michigan, and he invited me to come to another concert of his, which I went to as a Christmas concert, and, and I had a more sort of official meeting with him backstage after that concert. So the book sort of revolves around this three times I meet Pat Boone, but then in the rest of the book, I explore uh, different ways in which I'd sort of struggled with my Jewish identity. And you've talked about the importance of writing as a way to explore identity and to use it as a tool for self-discovery. And I'm curious how you would encourage others to begin that process. It may not be something as simple as, well, sit down and write. Right. I think that, uh, that's true in that, um, First thing that comes to mind is that we all do have a lot of stories. We're not just one thing. We're very complex human beings. And um, I mentioned the reason why my first two memoirs couldn't be one was because of voice. The voice was different. And that's true. But at the same time, there's another truth in that in the first book, I had this, you know, every book needs a kind of tight focus on one thing that we're going to explore. And because in some ways, probably everything we write is more or less about identity. But in the first book, so I explored my identity as growing up in an incestuous family and how I kind of worked through the recovery of that. And then in Love Sick, I worked through the ident- my identity of, um, you know, of, of struggling with sex addiction and, and how Love Sick sort of takes place on 28 days that I spent in the rehab center. So how I kind of struggled with sex addiction in the past and then how I worked through the recovery of it. And then even in Fearless Confessions, a writer's guide to memoir, is sort of about my identity as a writer. And then with this new book, The Captain Fan Club, is about my identity as a Jewish uh, person and 
and as a person speaking, seeking spirituality and sort of that, uh, why was I drawn to Catherine? I mean, Catherine now is sort of known as this Christian um, conservative uh, person, who, which is actually not me at all. I'm actually a liberal Democrat. But, uh, but growing up, I mean, he was just the total antithesis of my Jewish father. So that was why I had this wild crush on him, and I really wanted Catherine to adopt me. So there's another identity then in the Catherine fan club. And so it's a matter of not trying. So when, as writers, I think one thing that beginning writers do is try to tell their whole life story in one book. And that's one thing that I really work on with my students is no, 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 no. You don't have to like sort of cram everything in one book. Mm -hmm. And that is really good news because that's why, how we get to have a lot of different books that we write. Um, so just think of your life and, and what is the most important thing that you feel like you have to write now. Yes. And clearly for me, the first thing that I had to write right away was about growing up in my ancestors' family. I could never have written the Patrick book first. I had to sort of sort through the incest first. Then I had to sort of sort through the sex addiction second. And then by then I was ready to kind of take on uh, this uh, search for spirituality and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of how I struggled with Judaism growing up. So it's a matter of kind of, you know, looking really carefully at our at, at different areas of our lives that we want to explore. And each one can be its own entity, either its own essay or its own book. And so it's important just not to try to cram too much into any one given piece of writing, but to stay very clearly focused on the theme and knowing that if X incident or X episode in my life doesn't fit into the first book, well, that's okay. I'll park it someplace. I'll put it in another computer file and it will become, my, it'll be part of my second book. Mm hmm Absolutely. I think that's so important, too, because there is this pressure to, when we talk about writing memoir, to feel, I think, both like there's so many stories to tell. Oh, I have to tell all these stories. And at the same time, yes. there's also this sense of, well, who am I to tell this story? Who's going to want to read about this thing that happened to me? Who am I to think that this story is worth a book. I know. And that is what's so sad about how I think maybe young girls in particular ways think that our stories aren't important. That, um, you know, sort of the male traditional stories, the male going off to war, right, and fighting these wars and coming home and telling this story and sort of in just in a traditional sense of, mm -hmm. or, you know, like the odyssey, you know, like men go off and do these big important things and, and you know, women are left at home to sew or cook or whatever. But anyway, so, uh, but the, but we're sort of taught that, that traditionally those male stories of war and, and external journeys are what's important. But what I have to say is that women, maybe our stories are, are more internal mm. and they're more of emotional journeys, but that that are just equally important as an external journey. And I would claim maybe even more important because to me, what's really is much more interesting is kind of 
discovery of the human psyche. Yeah, everybody's everybody has a story to tell. Everybody's voice is important, and you know, we we are all connected. So that if you write your story, I'll be able to relate to it. You know, through metaphor. I mean, that's sort of the importance of metaphors to kind of discover the universality of our stories. Mm. Hmm. I realized that uh, we've talked about your tenure as a fiction writer and your memoirs and your book about writing, but we haven't at all talked about uh, your book of poetry, which is called Hieroglyphics in Neon. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about how how the the act of writing a poem and the act of writing memoir or creative nonfiction are they different for you? Are they similar? You explore multiple genres in your writing, and I'm curious how they intersect and if they intersect. Writing that poetry collection, I wrote it right after Lovesick. And um, some of the poems are kind of autobiographical, and of course, emotionally, they're all autobiographical. But I was really also able to enter uh, other uh, personas. Like I write about um, this thing, uh, Hadassah, who is an Egyptian pharaoh, for one example. And um, I really, I needed a space to come out of myself. Um, I, you know, writing two dark memoirs kind of back to back and then promoting lovesick well, ultimately, it was very rewarding in that, as I mentioned earlier, about just hearing from so many uh, women uh, who read the book and who really related to it. At the same time, some of the uh, formal media interviews were pretty brutal. Um, this one sort of shock jock, of course, a man on live radio said, asked me that Sue was the cutest place you ever had sex. I mean, stuff like that is so demoralizing and really depressing. And it really bummed me out for a while until I realized, you know, the heck with him. I mean, so he asked me an inappropriate question. Just, you know, that's not what the book is about. And I just have to kind of get over it. But part of the getting over that um, kind of, at the time, traumatic uh, uh, promoting of love it was to just, I, I just have to try something else altogether different. So I did turn to poetry and I found it very bringing. And um, just to be able to, uh, you know, kind of get away from myself a little bit, even as emotionally the poems are, are very much me, um, there's a freedom to that kind of writing. You know, when you're writing prose, you sort of have to get people in and out of doors. They have to go from one location to another location. And um, in poetry, there's that sort of feeling of time travel and it's just um, you know you can cover so much in a line break or white space and so there's a kind of freedom to the writing of poetry that I really don't as much as I love writing prose and, and I do and I am much more a prose writer than I am a poet at the same time I find it uses a different part of my brain and that writing poetry and I did just finish writing a second poetry collection I haven't gotten it I haven't sent it out yet to be published, but I do just finish writing one. And there is just a real, it's 
it's more joyful. Even if the poems are dark, it's more freeing. It just, it's, um, I hardly even know how to explain it because I, I know I'm not doing a good job of, of, of answering your question because I'm not sure I totally understand the difference. But all I know is that when I write poetry, it does feel more freeing that um, I just, it's a different part of my brain and I just feel a kind of joy that I don't feel when I'm writing prose. Even though I really am much more of a prose writer. Mm-hmm. So I I think about when we go in to write these hard stories. Um, you talk about writing two dark memoirs and then the ability of poetry to sort of pull you from that place and bring you to the next book. Um, I'm reminded of this quote by Annie Dillard that I think really hits to the heart of why anyone would choose to write those hard stories in the first place, and also why we go into those spaces and we step into the darkness. I think it takes a a certain kind of person to have the courage to walk into a dark room and say, I'm going to use this darkness and make light. Mm-hmm. And so Annie Dillard wrote, the secret is not to write about what you love best, but to write about what you alone love it all. Mm-hmm. And when I think about this quote, I, I'm really reminded that for me as a writer, writing those dark stories is about loving all of those parts of myself that experienced these things and Mm -hmm. came through these places and is standing here right now after years. And I think that is the kind of, of experience and the kind of storytelling that really connects with readers on a, a much deeper level than I'm going to read a memoir about incest or I'm going to read a memoir about sexual addiction. As as writers, we don't sit down and say, I'm going to write about this because it's fun. Right. And as, as readers, we don't sit down and say, I'm going to read this book because it'll make me feel good about myself. Yeah. And, it's, and of course, on another level, yes, let's say that my first book is about growing up in a sexist family. That's true. But at the same time, it it's also about alienation and loss mm-hmm. and loneliness and trying to find a sense of self. And so when we write these stories, we're not just saying, oh, well, this happened to me. Like my father did this to me, then he did that to me, then he did this next thing. I mean, it's not just that kind of linear story. What we want to do in memoir is really discover the metaphors of the experience because it's really through metaphor that we reach our readers so that even if you yourself would say did not grow up in a sister's family, you, one, hopefully could still read the book and, and connect to it and relate to it on that more emotional metaphoric level and 
to me, that's what makes a memoir art, is that we're not just telling the story of what happened to me. We're writing to discover our metaphors and to go much deeper than that. We are turning our lives into art. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's important to um, not just say, well, this, my father did, if I just sort of, you know, like your therapist or your best friend might want to know, well, my father did this to me. But when we're t- turning our lives into art, you really have to go much deeper than that and to discover, you know, the metaphors. And that's the universality of our stories. And that's how um, these memoirs uh, do connect with, with the reader, I think. Absolutely. I would like to close our episode today by giving you a chance to share a piece of wisdom for our listeners. If you don't tell your story, there's nobody else who can tell it. And, but I mean that on a very profound way. To think of your life, to think of all the stories that are inside of you. And um, you are the absolutely only person who can tell those. And if you don't express yourself, and if they aren't written, then they just disappear. And to me, that's really sad. On the other hand, if you do choose to, you know, to set your words down on paper, whether you share it with one person or thousands of people, it it almost doesn't matter. But just if you get your words down on paper, that's sort of the flip side. I mean, that's like a real um, joy in that and a a real profoundness of that, just to have your, your voice out there, your story out there. And not to have it lost really for all time. Because if you don't tell it, it will be lost for all time. And if you do tell it, then your voice will sing forever. That's beautiful. So if listeners want to find more about you or your work, they can go to your website, suewilliamsilverman.com. And they can also find you on Facebook and Twitter. I also have contact information on my website. And yes, please friend me on Facebook. And I and and my Facebook um, and Twitter accounts are also listed on my website if you have trouble finding me there. And thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. This has just been great. I've loved talking with you. It's been so wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. You have been listening to In Her Room, Women Writers on Life, Craft, and Changing the World. For more information about this and all of our episodes, please visit in-her-room.com. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Thank you for listening.